Eddie. I was, uh, I want to tell you guys, um, we, you know, I was, I was praying today and, and I was, I had you guys all in mind, really, our Wednesday night folks. And I, I don't know where, how everybody feels and where everybody's at, but, um, you know, when, when we go through like, like the way that we do on Wednesday nights where we, we've started in Genesis and we just started marching through the word of God. And one of the things that, that we find in the word of God that is, so powerful. One of the things that this time through the Word of God is that I've taught through it that God really spoke to me. And when I say this, sometimes people's ears perk up and like, because almost like I have something that that you know they haven't never discovered. And I never pretend to have something you haven't discovered. Just tell you what you already know. But um, one of the main themes of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. You guys heard me say this a bunch. My people, anybody? What is it? What is it? Well, it's Jesus. Yeah, that's always the right answer in church. If you're not sure, just say Jesus and you're going to be right. But one of the things I've been telling you guys a hundred times, right, is, is one of the underlying main themes, Genesis to Revelation. God is trying to communicate something to you through Genesis to Revelation. Okay. Hey, that's all right. Get out your pens because I've said this like 72 times and it hasn't quite sunk in yet. So let's, let's write it down. Listen, you can trust God. That's what God wants to communicate to you. One of the things that as you listen, so if you don't study the word, you don't know the word, you don't consider yourself a theologian, let's just say you're a reader, and you start in Genesis and, and you read the word, you know, there, there's a really a power that, that God is, is putting in your life. There's things that you're going to have that you don't realize are there supernaturally because the word of God is that powerful. And all these stories and all these things that God has wove through the lives of people in the Old Testament, it's amazing for, to think of the way that God decided to do it, right? Like he had a, a, a thing he wanted to communicate, a story he wanted to tell. So he weaves through the lives of real people and communicates to you exactly what he wants you to know by, by just watching people do life that he walks with, that he, his spirit leads, and, and, and then the things in their lives that the Holy Spirit has chosen to highlight. Now you realize so many of the things, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, um, um, uh, uh, who's the conqueror guy, <laughs> Joshua, um, um, that, that God highlights certain things in their lives. But, but one of the main things that he's trying to tell us is that we can trust him. And I think one of the biggest struggles that we have in life, in, in every area, in lots of areas of life, is not being able to or not knowing that you can absolutely trust God with every part of your life. You can trust God with your finances. You can trust God with your problems, with your sickness, with your illness. And, and even on a big, big level, on death, on, on things that because we believe in, in life after death, because we believe that, that this life, as the Bible teaches, is just a tent. We're just passing through. It's temporary. That, that we almost long for things that, that are after this life and, and that even things beyond this life can't shake us or harm us or hurt us. Relationships. Um, in every area of life, this is, this is what God wants. To, one of the things God wants to communicate, and it's so important, and it's so, it's so necessary for, for God to, com, to continue to remind us, because we so easily forget, right, is that we can trust God. And, and so as we go through the Bible the way that we, we do on Wednesday nights, even Sunday mornings as well, um, you know, there, there comes times, and I've told you guys this before too, right, I, I know, and maybe it's only me, but... Um, where we're just studying the history, we're studying the events, and maybe there's not a lot of life application for the moment, or there's not a lot of, um, you know, really exciting um, biblical applications and connections that we're making, but we're, we're walking through the lives of King David, 
of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Joshua, of Samson, of, um, you know, and on and on and on. But as we're faithful to do that over a period of time, things are happening in our lives that, that, that we, we don't necessarily see maybe right away. But then, but then you come to a point in life where, you know, it, you, find, you find you can trust God. You find that things come easier in knowing God and in, and in believing God. And, and part of it is because we put that, that all those stories in us and, and the Holy Spirit is using them to communicate something to us underlined. As I get to, I'll, I'll just be honest, the, the last part of the uh, Second Samuel, and Second Samuel's had some of my favorite chapters in all the Bible in it. I mean, when we got into like 11, 12, 13, Bathsheba, the sin, the repentance, Psalm 51, I mean, we, we slowed down and we spent weeks on that stuff. But where we are, 17 to the end of the book, and I'm going to maybe just finish it all tonight. You guys don't laugh at me. Um, it, it, it's a lot of history, and it's a lot of just kind of events and, and things that are going on. But, it, again, it, it's important, and it is value. There is, there is a real value. I was asking the Lord, you know, what do I do? Do I just, you know, find some highlights, the more of those things, like where we were when we were in Second Samuel 11, where David is sinning with Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet comes, and those big, big events? Or do we just keep, you know, plugging along and... So, but we're just going to stay the course. That's what we do here. So we're going to keep doing it. So, um, hey, this was from Sunday sermon. I didn't get it. So you guys will get the leftovers. But I, I wanted to share this with you real quick. Um, in John chapter 11. Turn with me to John 11 real quick. And then we're going to be back there. But just real, real quick, we're going to take a rabbit trail. In John 11, verse 25. You know, some, some of the promises of God, they, they, I, I don't know how to, like, emphasize them enough, right? They're, they're so powerful. They're so real. They're so life-changing that some of these, like, for example, the, you know, if I could tell you guys, and I say this, like, if I could tell you, or if we were, say we were in a seminar, and, and for your work, and your work is sending you away to a, a seminar to make you a better employee, and the presenter said something like, I could guarantee you with this formula for you to have two things in your life, good success and prosperity. Guarantee that. I can guarantee that in your life. Good success and prosperity. If you'll follow this formula that I'm going to present. How many of you guys would think that's a good idea? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll, that's okay. I'm, I'm in, Right. Like, I, I think, you know, we, we would all subscribe. We would all think, okay, what does he have? What in the world is this presenter going to give me that would guarantee in my life success, good success in all the things that you do, and prosperity? And how you view prosperity, biblical prosperity, that can vary. I think it's a, it's a kind of a conglomeration of a lot of things. It's not just monetary, but it includes monetary. And, and it's not monetary to the degree of, you know, you get a Rolls Royce. That's, that's not what God's talking about ever in the Word of God. But absolutely, that, that God will provide for all of your needs. Well, you know the Bible says three times how, that, that there's a formula in the Bible that you can have good success and prosperity in all that you do? Anybody know what it says? Joshua chapter 1, Psalms chapter 1. It says that if you'll meditate in the Word of God day and night, and be careful to do all that's in it, then you will have good success and, and prosperity. 
And it says that also in the Psalm, Psalm chapter 1. So, so this one here in, De- in John chapter 11, it, it's, it's again, it's one of those like amazing promises of God's word. And, and it's just true. Listen to what Jesus says. You know the story. Lazarus has died and Jesus took his time coming. And in verse 25 it says, And Jesus said to her, speaking to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Or I'm sorry, uh, speaking to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Listen. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. It's pretty powerful, right? Whoever lives and believes in Jesus shall never die. That's the promise of God's word for your life, that you'll never die. You know, I, I read in a science journal, medical journal this week, and, and these are common, right? You'll see them all the time. Every time you're in the news, some, some way or another. But this is the latest one that, just, that I just saw. And the title of the article was, Want to live longer? Question mark. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> You're with me. <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> not in this body. <laughs> I want the one that has muscles and that lives forever in heaven. I want that body. Um, but you know the 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 idea, especially for for the atheist, for the agnostic, for the secularist, and I, I don't actually you could you could look them up and they're out there, but don't quote me on exactly who it is. But whether it was Walt Disney or um, where they they've there's several extremely wealthy people in the last 40 years that have frozen their bodies. And their bodies today are frozen cryogenically in order to, um, once the medicine and, and technology catches up, that they can, they can be brought back. Because they, they believe in their, um, in their worldview that this life is all there is. So if this life is all that we have, then obviously we all would want to live longer. Now, I'm with you for sure. You know, and the Apostle Paul was there too, right? And the Bible says that. And that's an area where, you know, I'm not definitely not talking about, you know, suicide's not an option. If it would, then, you know, if it was cool that I just get to go to heaven, then I'd go jump off a bridge. But can't do that. There's work to be done here. But Paul said whether to live or to die, I, I, I can't decide which is better. Apostle Paul said that. He said, I, 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 I want to die and be with Christ. But, but, but God has a plan for me here. But God has a, a job for me to do, so I'm going to do it until that time is up. And, and so Paul even understood, I mean, the thing is this, right? It, it, as we get closer to Jesus in our lives, there, there should be, and the Bible says there's a crown given to those who long for heaven, for those who long for the appearing of Jesus Christ, for those who love God, there's a special crown. And, and the more we love Jesus, the more we realize and believe that this life is temporary and, and what heaven's going to be like, then, then naturally, the natural, natural response, especially for somebody like the Apostle Paul who was so close to Jesus, that he wanted to be there. He wanted, it, it really tore him up inside to, to have to stay here every day because he wanted to be in heaven. Now, we, we have to keep our feet on the, on the ground, you know, and, and we, can't, we can't long for it so much. You know, somebody said one time, if you... You know, if you're you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. You actually can't be any earthly good until you're heavenly minded. But once your mind is focused on those things, you're you have more earthly good. And then we we gain that maturity that the apostle Paul had in that understanding. Yes, as much as I long for heaven, I realize that there's people that are dying going to hell. I realize that that there's work to do here uh, until that time. 
You know, from, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible has some amazing things to say about heaven. But you know the description is actually very vague. One of the, 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 the vaguest subjects in the Bible is heaven itself. You know why that is? Well, the apostle, you know, what did the apostle Paul say about heaven? He said, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But he was caught up into the third heaven. Do we need a rabbit trail right there? Why, why he said he was caught up into the third heaven? And why, why some have that wrong? Okay, really quickly, um, in, in Corinthians, when it says that there's terrestrial and celestial and, and, and Paul said the third heaven, biblically, that's really, really simple. There, there's the, the way that those terms in the, in the Greek language are described is the heavens are when you look up and you see the clouds and the blue and the sky. That's considered, we look up and we, see, we say heaven, right? And then what's beyond what we see with the clouds and the blue sky? You could see it at night. The stars and the universe, second level of heaven. And then what's beyond that is supernatural. And it could be among us, but it's because it's supernatural. It's in a different realm. It's in a different time domain. So that's what the Bible describes as third heaven where God resides. But it's not levels of heaven. It's not the way it's been misinterpreted. It's not the way it's been mistaught. It's just a simple science thing that the, 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 the universe the, the, and the heavens, where we are, the universe and the heavens. So anyways, Paul was in heaven, heaven where God was. And when Paul got back, he said, now, you'll hear pastors say this. It's kind of pet peeve of mine. I don't know why. It's not a big deal. But if you're true to the text, what Paul said was, the things that I heard would be unlawful for me to try to repeat them. And so many people, when they read that, just naturally, they say, when Paul, actually, God brought him to heaven. So what happened was Paul got stoned. He was killed. His spirit went up to heaven. God wasn't done with him yet. So God revived him. But in the process of God, before God revived him and, and him, you know, his, his, his soul was taken to heaven and he was in the presence of God. And some will say, oh, the things that Paul saw. Well, no, the, the Bible doesn't give any description. Uh, Paul never describes things that he saw with his eyes, only things he heard with his ears. So, so anyways, neither here nor there. But when you hear that, just know it's, it's what Paul heard. And he said those things would be, he said, if I tried to put them into, into English, into into language it would just be unlawful for me to 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 repeat those things you know for some of those folks who have claimed that they they've died and gone to heaven and they describe in detail the things that happened there you know because of that verse some would say and i'm I'm not in that class i'll just tell you that some would say that all those those are not necessarily real experience because even the apostle paul himself wouldn't describe the things that he heard but if we're if we're being true to the text the Apostle John, he did describe scenes in heaven. So the Bible doesn't forbid describing scenes in heaven. And I believe that God, I don't know, like I said, I don't, I don't make a big deal out of it. I really don't. You know, I don't get twisted about it. I don't get upset at those people who make those claims. Um, so, some people, um, one of those guys was proven a liar. He came out later and he was the one that was in a car accident and he died in the car and was revived in the hospital and he wrote a book and, and then later came out and recanted his story and repented. It was all a bunch of nonsense that he, that he lied about to, to sell a book. But the last one, that little boy, um, like four-year-old, six-year-old boy, story. Yeah, they made a movie of this one. What's the title of that one? Heaven is for real. I, I love that testimony. I thought it was so good. I thought it was so like Bible. I don't think I didn't find anything in it that that I that I didn't think was legit or was like 
like not Bible. I just thought it was a really cool story. And I think, and I don't know, like I said, I don't want to get into like splitting hairs over it, but God could do that. He did it with John. And, and you can't take that, that place where Paul was. And because Paul said the things that I heard would be unlawful to describe. Okay. So that was rabbit trail. Now we're back to what I was talking about. That's what I'm talking about. What I said was the Bible has very limited information about heaven. Okay. Because right. If we knew exactly the, the, the splendor of heaven, we would all then jump off a bridge to get there immediately. It would be that, it would be that amazing. This is, this is just what the Bible does say about heaven. This is what you can kind of think about. The Bible says that it, it has not entered into the mind or the heart the things that God has prepared for those that love him. So what that means, let me unpack that. What that means is as vivid and, and, and as amazing as the human imagination is of paradise. And we could, you know, <clears throat> we could brainstorm and we could think of the things that um, are heavenly and that what heaven could be like and we could draw pictures and imagine paradise. I had a pastor who, who used to use this illustration and it just stuck with me and I should just forget I ever heard it and never repeat it, but I just can't because it's in my mind. But my pastor would say that no matter how imaginative we could get, that imagination would look like a booger compared to heaven. A hairy one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, but that's crazy, right? I, I heard a pastor say this the other day, and I thought, well, it's probably even better than that because that's entered into the mind, and the Bible says the things that God has prepared for you, they're so amazing that you can't even imagine them. Somebody said that we have, what do we have now, five senses, right? What are they? They're sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing. Okay, but in heaven, we could have like 50 senses, right? But even but even that thought has entered our mind. So it's gonna be way better than that, right? Like because anything that you could imagine, it's going to be way better. So, all right. So heaven, heaven is going to be real. And God said, we're going to live forever. So back to the, the article, want to live, lo- live longer. So here's the five things you have to do if you want to live longer. Okay, you guys ready? This is, a, this is a medical journal recently, like two weeks ago. This article is about two weeks old. This is the latest, greatest. None of these are, are radical or life-changing. None of them are, they're just, you guys could name them right now. If we went and said, give me five ideas of things you got to do. So number one, eating a healthy diet, right? Duh. Um, exercising regularly, maintaining a healthy body weight. I'm getting convicted as I read these. Um, <laughs> drinking only in moderation and not smoking. So those are the five things that, that the medical journal this week has said you can do to live longer, okay? Or you can just believe in Jesus, and then you'll live forever. That's, that's the one I like. Because I, like, I don't like eating a healthy diet or exercising regularly. No, the Bible says bodily exercise profits a little. That's what the Bible says. Bodily exercise profits a little bit, but godliness with content is great gain. So God, God, God does say, hey, it's, it's not a bad idea to work out. Healthier. Yeah. And, and you know the way I look at it is like those last five years of life, you're in a diaper anyway, so why do I want to live through those years? I just want to, you know. All right, so. All right, back to, back to 2 Samuel. So now strap on your seatbelt. We are going to cover some ground. What I'm going to do, and I'll tell you which, where I'm going to pick up in a verse. I'm not necessarily through all this today going to read it all. I'm going to kind of more tell you the story as we go through. So in chapter 17, where we're going to pick up, um, 
Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. So Ahithophel is this wise advisor who's been a great friend and a great counterpart to King David his entire life. Now, for whatever reason, Ahithophel has chosen to, to side with his son Absalom. Now, Absalom is, is in full-on rebellion. David has fled the kingdom, running from his son Absalom. Where we read last week, Absalom put a tent in the middle of the, of the city. And what did he do? Who was here last week? He went into David's concubines. David left ten concubines back. Now, you know you got too many wives, right? When you take your family and your wives and you leave ten behind, just the extra ten. So he leaves ten behind, and Absalom goes in to David's concubines. David has fled, and this advisor and, and some of the people are, are, are picking sides. Now, you remember when David sinned with Bathsheba, the Lord completely forgave David, right? David was completely washed clean of his sin. We're going to read um, in, in 1 Kings in a couple weeks. And, and it blew me away. I read it today. I read ahead and I read through half of 1 Kings today through the end of this. And um, when, 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 when God anoints Solomon to be the next king of Israel, David's son, he tells Solomon this. He says, if you'll walk with me as your father David did, I will bless you in Israel. And I'm thinking, as your father David did, did you read the life of David or did you miss that, God? And, and yet God says of King David, it, it says to his son Solomon, Solomon, if you'll walk with me as your father David did, I'll bless you. If you'll keep my statues as your father David did. And we look at the life of David and we see all these things. And God doesn't remember any of them. God only remembers the, the good things. God, God has forgotten the sins and God has forgiven the sins. But as we know, and as we, again, painstakingly tried to communicate to you, that, that, that God forgives our sins, but there are still consequences for our sins. There are still results, natural results, not God punishing you, not God being angry with you, but natural effects that we put into our lives based on decisions that we make that are outside of God's will. And, and so David, the prophecy that Nathan gave, David said, Nathan said, what should we do with this guy, David? And David said, that man shall surely die. And Nathan said, David, you're that man. And he said, but God's not going to kill you. God's going to forgive you and God's going to wash you. But, David, there's going to be some natural results to your sin in your life. And so these are some of the things that Nathan prophesied that would happen in King David's life. One of them is that his family would be torn apart, that the sword would never leave his house. And here his son his Absalom is leaving. So Ahithophel, this trusted advisor, um, is there. And, and the other advisor was a guy named Hushai. And Hushai stayed with King David. And, and, or I'm sorry, he wanted to go with King David. And, and David said, Hushai, you stay back in Jerusalem. And he said, you try to combat the advice of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, again, you guys, was a super amazing, wise, wise guy. He, all of his advice was always right on. To this point, it's right on. If, if Absalom had, had followed his advice, he would have beat his father David and overthrown him. But, but by, the, by, the, by the will of God, um, Hushai was left behind. And so Hushai says to Absalom, so basically what Ahithophel's advice was, attack now. Get the men and go and charge after your father David and attack him right now. He's vulnerable. He's on the run. Go get him. And then Hushai said, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Your father is a warrior. He's a, he is cunning. 
If you come and you surprise him now, and if your men start to fall in the front of this battle, the hearts of your men will, will, will be lost inside of them, and David will prevail and rise up. Don't do that. Wait. Gather all of Israel together with you. And when you have all of Israel, you lead them out. And he was, he was, he was um, you know, speaking to Absalom's own pride and his own arrogance and his own desire to, 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 to be the leader and, and get the glory. And Hushai and Absalom liked the advice of Hushai because it made him a hero. And, and while David was vulnerable, it protected him. So then, so then it goes on, and, and basically David has some, some women that are there in the camp, and, and the women are sent back to King, are sent out to where King David has fled out of the city. They're telling King David what is going on, and, and Hushai's warning David. He says, Escape, get out. I've I, I prevented the immediate attack, he took my advice. So you need to run, and they send this through the the women who come in. Um, And then they, um, trying to just pick up some highlights. Oh, verse 23, chapter 17. So when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled his donkey, he arose, and he went home to his house, to the city, and then he put his household in order, and he hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. So Ahithophel, you know, sometimes very wise, wise people do very foolish things. You know, some of the most, some of the most intellectually brightest people the world has ever had were really weird people. They were socially awkward. They had a hard time in institutions. They flunked out of schools. They couldn't do things well. Well, this Ahithophel guy was one of those guys. He was just a really, really intellectual type of individual. He was like things he, he knew and understood. And he just saw the writing on the wall. He knew that because Absalom was arrogant and his type of leadership and because he followed Hushai's advice, he knew that Absalom was going to lose. His fate was there. And he did something very foolish. Now, the Bible records here, this is a suicide. Obviously, it does not condone suicide. Okay? The, the Bible records, as far as I know, maybe you guys know of another one or there's another one out there I haven't found. But the Bible records two suicides in the Bible that I know of. This one and one other. You guys remember the other one? The other one, Judas Iscariot. Okay? So, um, you know, there are some people who have taught over the years that suicide is an automatic ticket to hell. It's an unpardonable sin. Now, I personally don't believe you can find that or make that argument in the Bible, um, that that's, that's good theology or good doctrine. I definitely wouldn't want to say that, um, you know, that, that people who have committed suicide didn't end up going to hell. And again, we don't know who goes to hell and who goes to heaven. That's one of the things the Bible doesn't give us liberty to decide or, or have even really judgment on. It's, and God says don't judge in that area. You don't know who goes to heaven. You don't know who goes to, goes to hell. That's for me to, to figure out, and you don't have to worry about it. But, um, you know, I will just say that suicide can be um, a mistake, a sin that, that you don't get a second chance at. And there can be some worse sins, right? There can be some things you can get in your car completely drunk and smash into a, a family and kill a family and then spend the next 40 years in prison. But you have 40 years to repent and to get right. And you made a terrible decision that you have a second chance with. So suicide um, it, it, it's a dis, it's just because you, you, you never have a second chance to, to repent and get right. And, and I don't know. I don't know that God wouldn't, and I believe that God would, even see into the future, right? He would know your heart. He would judge righteously. And, you know, for me personally, I had a nephew who committed suicide. His name was J.D., and uh, J.D. was 16 years old. And J.D. had, and this was, um, 
I was, I'm only a couple years older than JD, so this was a long time ago, about 20 years ago, and um, JD, he, he, had, he had ADHD, he, his mind was constantly just, um, you know, moving really fast, and it frustrated him, and he couldn't settle down, and he had, he had lots of emotional and, and real, real legitimate mental illness. And, and when J.D. committed suicide, I think, again, it was a decision in a moment of weakness that God can see through, that, that God can judge his heart. And, 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 and I don't know. I don't know. Maybe God can, can let somebody's life play out in, in, his, in, his, in his will and in his foreknowledge and, and, and make the right decision. But, we, again, we don't have to worry about it. Obviously, suicide is, you know, think about suicide. Suicide is evil. It's evil in the fact that um, it, it's Satan's ultimate end game for everybody that he has control of. And, and Judas is the perfect example. Judas is the only person who Satan himself has entered and that biblically, and maybe he has throughout the years, maybe he entered Hitler himself. I don't know. Maybe some others. You know, normally it would be a, a demonic uh, a being, a fallen angel that, that does the work. But with Judas Iscariot, you know, Jesus, Satan wanted to make sure that one was done right, so he did it himself. Um, and what was the end game of Judas Iscariot? suicide all right Jess that yeah yeah that's what I just said absolutely that was the point I was just trying to make I hope you heard that that yes that I, I do believe Jesus can see through that yeah and again I you know me personally I would never want to take that risk you know what I mean like if there's an if and if it is a sin that would anyway all right I, you know it would be scary i don't want to i don't want to take any chances so then um and i also don't believe you know i i personally just don't believe you can lose your salvation too and that's a circular argument and there's a lot of discussion to go on with that and a lot of explaining to go through with that but i happen to land on the side that you know jesus said those that I, that, that the father has placed in my hands of these i've lost none and I just can't get around that, right, that God has lost none. But, you know, I guess I just would just say this, that um, so, some would take that as a liberty to live a life outside of God. And that, that's, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible either. Seven times in the New Testament, there's a list this long that says if you practice such things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I don't know how to get around that. That's, that's whether, whether you, you know, so, all right. Another night, another another topic. So then Ahithophel um, ends up, verse 23, he, he ends up committing suicide. And then um, Absalom's about to die. Verse chapter 18. And David numbered the people who were with him and the captains of the hundreds over them. And David sent out a third of the people under the hand of Joab, one third under the hand of Abishai, the Zariah, Joab's brother, another third in the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I... I also will surely go out with you myself and the people answered you shall not go out for if we flee away they will not care about us nor if half of us die they will not care about us but you are worth 10,000 of us right now for you are now more help in the city then the king said to them whatever seems best to you and I will do so the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by the hundreds and by the thousands um Sorry. Okay, so um, 
let's go verse 12. It says, then, then the man said to Joab, though, oh no, we got to back up for that. I'm sorry. So basically, um, Absalom, you remember Absalom had that hair and somebody came up to me last week and they told me what his hair weighed. And, um, cause we had mentioned that he had, he had that crazy hair. Oh, not crazy hair. He had beautiful hair. He said he was one of the most handsome guys on the planet. You know, Absalom was. And he had hair. And every every year he would cut it and, it and weigh it because he was so vain. And he had like five pounds of hair that he would cut off every year. Well, he, he's fleeing Joab's army. And he's got that big, beautiful Rico Suave hair. And it says, it says this is a true story. It says that it got caught in the, in the bush. I'll just read it to you guys because I don't know why you're laughing at me. But verse 7, look, it says, The people of Israel were overthrown before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. So it was rough conditions out there. Horses were falling. There was just people getting eaten up by the conditions. And then Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode on a mule. Well, that was his first problem. He was riding a mule. Then the mule went under the thick bow of great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth tree, so it was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. And when a certain man saw it, he said and told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in the terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him, and why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels. And basically the guy says, I don't care if you would have filled both of my hands with silver and gold. I heard the king tell you to not kill Absalom. And so as they went out to battle, as Joab and his men went out to face them, David says to all those in the hearing, take it easy on the boy, Absalom, for my sake. Will you, will you take it easy on Absalom? And so Joab says, well, why didn't you kill Absalom when you caught him hanging in the tree? And he said, man, I heard King David. And he said, you, you yourself would have killed me when you would have testified against me and, if, and, and nothing is hidden from the king. And, and, and the king ordered you to kill me, and, you, and I don't care what you would have given me, and I would, have, I would have done it. Verse 14, Joab says, man, I can't linger here anymore. I can't talk to you anymore. And he took three spears in his hand, and he thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And then ten young men who bore Joab's armor, armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And so Joab blew the trumpet. Basically, the war's over. And, and then in verse 19, um, David hears of Absalom's death. And it says that Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king and how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. And Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again, he came back to Joab, please let me run. Whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, okay, why will, you know, he said, why will you run, my son? You don't even have the news. You don't, you don't even know what's going on. You can't even give the king what he wants to know. But whatever happens, he said, let me run. Please, just let me run. And so he said to him, fine, run. And Ahimaaz ran by the plain out of the way of the Cushite. So basically what, what's going to happen here coming up is, is the king's men are going to see these, this runner coming. And he's going to say, I see the, uh, a messenger. And David says, well, surely is he alone? And he, he has word of the battle and he has news. And they said the running is that of, of the Cushite. And so the second guy who ran, he outran the first guy. 
And, and Joab picked the first guy who had the story. He understood what was going on. He had the message, and, and he sent him out. Well, the second guy's like, I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. go. And Joab's like, what are you going to go for? You don't even have the news. You don't even have the message for the king. He said, I know, I know, but I want to run. And Joab said, what? okay, fine, run. So the guy takes off. He outruns the first guy, and he comes to King David. And then, and then King David says to him, so the watchman said, verse 27, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimehaz, the son of Zeda. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. So Ahimehaz called out and said to the king, all is well. And when he bowed his face to the earth before the king, he said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. So basically, hey, we've won the battle. And the king said, is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimehaz answered, and Ahimehaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant to me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. And so he turned aside and stood still. The king said, well, get out of the way. You don't have the news. Now, he knew Joab was dead. I mean, the, the second runner, he told him, but he didn't know the details. And he, and he, and he couldn't tell the king he didn't have the, the, the ability to be the one to communicate the message to the king that his son was dead. His son would have known what happened and this and that. And he just like, well, I, I don't know. And the king said, stand aside. Now, now, one of the things for us kind of is that we, we see this all too often, that people want to run, but they don't have a message. And, and you want to serve God, but you, you don't have a gift or a call. Now, now, you know, one of the biggest mistakes we've made, and I've seen it over and over and over again in walking with the Lord. I remember, you know, I could give lots of examples, but I think of like Deion Sanders was one. Deion Sanders was uh, prime time. And Deion Sanders was the, one of the best defensive backs the NFL has ever seen. He was prime time. He was an amazing football player. And, and he gets saved. And he becomes a Christian. And like two weeks after he's a Christian, because of who he is, he, he's on TV, he's, he's on the stage in front of this big, huge mega church, and they give him a mic, and they're like, you know, they, they think that he's going to preach, and he's going to have something of value to say. He's been walking with the Lord like two years, I mean two weeks. He, he has no message, he has no prep, and it's not, really, it's not even who God says in the Word that, not to say he couldn't use down the road with training and prep Deion Sanders, but God says, I'm going to take the foolish things of the world and confound the wise. And, and we always think, man, if, if, you know, Katy Perry would give her life back to Jesus, she grew up as a Christian and dad's a pastor and she came out with testimony for Jesus, like how powerful would that be to the world and to Hollywood and it never works. It's, ne- it's never powerful. It never changes anything because nine times out of ten, the, the, the people, you know, because of who they are, they get saved today and tomorrow they, they, they want to be in front of crowds preaching and teaching, but they have no message. They have no training. They have no no depth of character and, and, and relationship with God. And you see it over and over and over and over again. You know, oh, I just want to run. I just want to run. But you don't have a message. You're going to get there, and what are you going to say when you get there? And that, listen, there's a season for us to be trained. You know the Apostle Paul. You think of the Apostle Paul, right? You read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. He, he's, he's on the way to, to Damascus, and there in Damascus, he's killing Christians. He's imprisoning him. And on the road to Damascus, he's knocked down. A bright white light comes, and the Lord Jesus speaks to the Apostle Paul, and he says, Paul, why are, you, why are you kicking against the goads? And Paul says, who are you, Lord, that I might serve you? And he says, it's Jesus. And Paul gives his life to God on the road to Damascus, 
scales are covering his eyes. You guys know the story. He goes and God says, go, go to this city and wait there and I'm going to bring a, 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 a brother there who's going to come and pray for you. And, and, and the brother comes a couple of days later and prays for him. He receives the Holy Spirit. The scales fall off of his eyes. In the next chapter, Paul is, is, is preaching the gospel. That's the way it kind of goes through kind of the progression. Well, actually, chapter 10 goes back to Peter, Peter and Cornelius. And then, and then 11 or 12, by the time we get to 12, Peter falls off the pages of the book of Acts, and it just follows now Paul the rest of the way. But what you don't realize is from the road to Damascus to chapter 12, there's a 13-year gap in that, in that time frame in there. 13 years. The Apostle Paul, before he's after, from the road to Damascus until his, his ministry really gets kicked off, 13 years three of which he spent on the backside of the, of the desert where he says, the Bible says that Jesus personally trained Paul. Spent three years with him back there. Why? Well, one of the reasons is because when Judas Iscariot died, Paul was the natural 12th apostle that, that God raised up and called. And one of the qualifications for being one of the 12 apostles, now one of the, the 12 apostles is a big deal because, because God is going to, you realize the Bible says on the very gates of heaven, which are eternal, there's, there's 12 foundations. And upon each of the foundations is the name of one of the apostles. And on the 12 gates, the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you have the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, and their names are written on the eternal gates of heaven. And so Apostle Paul, in order to meet the criteria of, of, of those 12, only those 12 in history, the only apostles we've ever had in that category, in that thing that doesn't exist anymore, that, that is over, we have people that maybe do the work of or the ministry of, but we only had 12 apostles. And if somebody's a modern-day apostle, just ask them which one of the 12 sides of heaven is their name going to be written on. And if it's not, then, then, they're, then they're not in that. They don't qualify. But, yeah, but the apostle Paul, so anyways, he's, he's, tr- he's trained for 13 years to get his message, right? And, and so we, we don't want to despise. The Bible says don't despise the days of little things. The Bible says be faithful in the little things and God will trust you with more. And there does, there does need to be, there should be a season of training and of growing and of, of maturing. And, you know, and, and Timothy tells the young people in ministry and in life, don't, don't let anyone despise your youth. And I'm not saying that you can't be young and, and do big things for God and serve God in, in those ways. But, but there has to be, God has to first put a message in you. You know, the ability to, to what, what part of the body of Christ you are is not based on your talents. God will give you the talents but it's based on a gift. It's like we all come to, to Christmas, you know, and, 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 and there's a present under the tree for every one of us. And the one you open up, that's, that's the gift God gave you. That's, that's where God's called you, and that's what God wants you to do. But he's also going to give you a gift to do it. Teaching and preaching and communicating the word of God is it's not a talent or a skill. It's a gift. And I don't believe you can do it without the gift. You know, some people have done it so long and have the gift that we've seen cases, right, where, where maybe the, the, the Holy Spirit already left. They, they, they had fallen into sin. We had, we had one of our pastors who was involved in an adulterous affair and still in the pulpit for two years and still preaching good messages. Because after a season of, because of, uh, God's not going to rescind a gift that he gives. And it had, I hope that never happens to me, in the fact that he got so good and he was so seasoned that, that now he could just do it in, in his flesh and in, and in his skill. You know, and, and I'm not there yet, praise God, I don't ever want to get there. If God doesn't come up here and knock standing next to me, I don't ever want to come up here. You know, if the Lord doesn't go with me, it's not the Holy Spirit, but that's a gift. And, that, and when we have that gift, and whatever gift God has given you, 
you know, you use that for God's glory. Amen. So this guy doesn't have the message, but he wants to run. And unfortunately, like I said, we see that too often. Then Cushite, the other guy, um, he finally shows up. He has the message. And um, then chapter 19, it says, And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning. And all the people, for they heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, quickly. David, a um, couple, couple of things here, first of all. Now, now, number one, David is, as God, his son has just rebelled against him went into all of his wives or his ten concubines he left behind. Trying, He would have killed David if he had the opportunity. He tried to steal the kingdom, and, and David still had mercy and, and grace and was still heartbroken when his son died. Now, now, part of that is the heart of God, right? Because we're all kind of Absaloms to some degree pr- prior to God's mercy and grace. And God, you know, the Bible says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. That before you were... Before you were um, you know, not because you earned it or deserved it or because while you were in rebellion against God, when you were committing the very sins that, that put his son upon a cross, he loved you and he died for you. And, and, and so we see, the, we see the heart of God in that. But then the other problem that, that we, we see in David's life is that David was struggling with his own sin as a result of his own decisions that he made in life that were outside of God's umbrella and outside of the will of God, way even back to his sin with Bathsheba. Now, I'm sure David is feeling like in his heart, like we all would. I've seen, um, I've counseled with people who struggle with this very same thing. And they feel like, well, if, had I been a better parent, my, my child wouldn't have made that decision. It's my fault. And that's why what my child has done is terrible and egregious. But I, I can't be hard on him. Or I can't, I can't be mad at him because it's ultimately it's my fault. And, and it's something. And so David is struggling with this. David is dealing with this, this pain in his heart that, that somehow he's responsible for the decisions that Absalom's made. Now, I think looking back as parents that, that we can never do that. Now, looking forward, we can say, hey, let's be good parents today. So, so that we can raise godly children. And, you know, the goal of Christian parents of, of us is not raising good kids. It's, right, it's raising kids that know and love Jesus, right? It's raising kids that um, have intimacy and relationship with Jesus. That's, that's our goal. Because in that, then, then we've accomplished the goal. But we're not trying to raise, you know, necessarily good kids. We're not trying to raise kids that follow the rules. We're trying to raise kids that, that follow the rules because they don't want to break the heart of Jesus, because they have a relationship with Jesus, because they love Jesus. So, um, but, but at some point, it, it's, kids have a decision for themselves. You know, and, and, and for, for, some, for you to look at somebody's kids who are in rebellion and think, oh, they're, they're bad parents or, or they, they did a bad job, well, then you, you'd have to make the same same assessment of, of God the Father. Because God has rebellious kids. Is he a bad father? Did he do a bad job? Obviously not. I mean, one more notch for, uh, 
free will, right? That 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 free will that God that we all have a free will and that that God's given us free will. And so Absalom here, now he, he had a free will. He had a choice. Did David do some things that were that were sinful and wrong? Absolutely. But at the same time, Absalom made some real decisions. And Absalom obvious, obviously, Absalom had some arrogance and some pride problems. Now we remember we already read. And we, we kind of made a joke about it where God says that Absalom was the most handsome person in all of Israel. Now, if you're that guy, right, and, you know, everybody's complimenting you all the time and telling you how good you look and all the girls are throwing themselves at you, sometimes that, that's, that's a bigger danger than, you know, a lot of other problems because you start to believe that and you start to think that's, that's – so he obviously struggled with that Absalom did and went to his head. And he decided that he wanted to be king and not his father and that, that he belonged, you know, that he should have that. So David, is, his heart is broken. I'm going to kind of sum up where we are. Um, and then we'll, I'm not sure where we'll pick up, but we'll, we'll pick up in here in a minute. But um, so basically Joab is going to come and Joab's going to give him good advice. And Joab's going to say, so the men, um, what we, do, we already read, the people that were coming back from war. Normally you'd come back from victory and you would march through the front gates and you'd celebrate. And the people in the, that were left behind would, would cheer and would encourage you. And you'd be a little bit of a hero and have a little parade coming in. And maybe like in a championship sports parade the next day, the next week when everybody got home, they'd, they'd literally schedule a parade to a victory. Well, it says all the men um, from the war, they came back and they snuck into their houses because, because they knew that David, because they felt ashamed, because David is mourning over Absalom. So Joab's going to come and he say, David, what are you doing? He said, and he gave him good advice. Now, I, I don't know why. It, to me, when I just read this, now Joab wasn't perfect, right? You guys remember Joab? He, 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 he kills Absalom here. He already killed um, a general that David set up and he and w- apart from David's will and he kills Amasa and he he does some things that were kind of backhanded and and he does some things that probably should have been done that David didn't want done um but really as I just as I just read it as a casual reader I see where Joab was like he he was a, first of all he's a general of a, of a of a real army and he's a man's man and he makes some really tough decisions but it seems to me like he's always got David's back like, remember last week when, when David, again, um, wouldn't come out after Bathsheba and the whole thing, and he was still in mourning, and Joab and his men went down, and they had this, the, 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 the crowns for clowns. Do you remember that message? Where there, there was spoil to be had from this war, and Joab goes back, and he says, David, come down. The war's over. Come down and take credit for it. And they already won the war. So come down and receive the crown. Come down and get the glory. And over and over, I, I, I see that Joab seems to me like, even though he was a tough friend, he didn't always agree with David, that in the heart of hearts, that he had David's best interests at hand. And, 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 and David, on his deathbed, he's going to tell Solomon, don't let that Joab go down to the grave in peace. You make sure you send him to the afterlife. And he doesn't die of old age. It's one of the commandments that David's going to give to his son Solomon. It's kind of like bummed me out. Like, like I don't know. Maybe maybe there was more to the story. I mean, Joab was, you know, he did some pretty rotten things for sure. But here he's he's again he has the king's back. He's going to give him good advice, and he's going to say, David, these people will never follow you again. And in, and and he's going to say, you know, you, everything that's ever happened to you, this will be worse. If you don't come out right now and celebrate with this victory, 
and, 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 and if, you know, what the people are going to believe and what they're going to say is that you, you would hope that we all died and Absalom lived because then you would be happy. And that's the message you're going to send if you don't get out here right now and celebrate and, and give glory and victory and honor to the men and women who fought for you. And, and so that's what he's going to do. David's going to kind of, he's going to get over it. He's going to um, um, bring the people back and he's going to uh, um, celebrate. And then uh, if we pick up in verse 20, uh, not 20, let's go 18. It says, David's mercy to Shimei. So now as they're coming back, now some people have, we're on the side of Absalom. And so David is going to start going through and figuring out who he has to kill and who gets to live and who betrayed him and who took Absalom's side and took the side of the loser. Now David won this fight. And so the first one that shows up is uh, Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king who had crossed over Jordan. He says, do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my Lord left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet the Lord my king. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for, him, for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, son of Zariah, that you should be ad- ad- adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For I do not know that today I am king over Israel. Therefore, the king said to Shimei, he shall not die. And the king swore to him. Remember, Shimei was the one on the other side of the hill that was cursing David as they went. And um, what's funny, though, is David spares this guy when he was cursing him. Then the guy comes in and says, oh, hey, I'm sorry about all those things I said about you. And David's like, you know, and then David's general. Remember, the guy said, oh, let me go over and take off that guy's head. And David said, no, just let him curse me. Maybe God's in it. Maybe there's some truth in what he's saying. And, and, and David was one of David's great strengths was he, he, he trusted the Lord and just said, well, like God's sovereignty is bigger than this situation. And so Shimei shows up and he's like, hey, uh, please forgive me. And the guy says, now I can really take his head off. Right, David? And David says, no, there's been enough killing in Israel today. You know, I forget what the number was, but a, a ton of people on the side of Absalom and David's between this battle had already died. And David said, there'll be no more death in Israel today. And he forgives Shimei. And then when he gets done telling Solomon on his deathbed years later, hey, kill Joab and that guy Shimei, take him out too. <laughs> so David's going to order this guy's death later. But I don't know, he was old and grumpy or something. And he's like, eventually he is going to say this guy's got to go. So next was Mephibosheth. Um, you guys know Mephibosheth, right? He was lame in his feet. He was Saul's, uh, Jonathan's grandson, son, nephew. He was, he was akin to Jonathan. And because J- David's promise to, to do good to Jonathan, he brings this crippled guy into his house. He eats at his table. And then he says to Mephibosheth, why did you betray me? And Mephibosheth said, David, I didn't betray you. I'm crippled. I, I don't have anybody. They deceived me. They told me that, that, you know, I needed someone to help me, and they put me on a horse, and they told me I was half of something else. I didn't deceive you. I didn't betray you. I was deceived. And so David has mercy on Mephibosheth. And then verse 31 says, And Brazilii the Gileadite came down from Rogalim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Brazilii was was very aged man, 80 years old. And when he had provided the king with supplies, and when he stayed in Mahanam, the very rich man, the king said to Berezio, I come across with me, and I will provide for you while you are here in Jerusalem. 
And basically the guy says, no, I'm old, the, you know, the, the, the food and the, the entertainment and the dancing girls and stuff is not kind of my thing anymore. I'm 80 years old and I just want to stay. And the king answered in verse 38, Shimei shall cross over with me and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. And all the people went over the Jordan. And when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Brazilii and blessed him and he returned to his own place. And in verse 40, it says, Now the king went to Gilgal, and Chiham, Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. And just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So the men of Judah answered, The men of Israel, because the king is a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Why not? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the other men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. All right, we can do this next chapter in two minutes. Um, and then it happened that the rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Berkai, the Benjamite, and he blew a trumpet and he said, so um, I'm going to sum up chapter 20. So basically in this kind of idea, we love David more than you do. No, we're more noble, more loyal than David. This guy Sheba raises up and this guy Sheba gets some people to follow him and they're going to cause a revolt against David. And so David, um, he assigns, uh, and, th- and this is one of the things that David is going to mention when he tells Solomon that he has to kill Joab, this general that had been with David all the years. So David has a distant cousin. His name is Amasa. And so David tells Amasa to gather an army together and, and, and go down and deal with this Sheba, this guy here in chapter 20 that through this thing has kind of risen up and, and is causing a rebellion. So it says that Joab um, shows up to the battle and Amasa's kind of in charge. And of course, Joab's not going to go with that. And it says that he reaches with his right hand and on his beard to kiss him and with his left hand he stabbed him and killed him and one of the you know things biblically was you know for the soldiers they always carried their their, their weapon in their right hand and so it was actually you know a, a, a trickery and, and not many would use their left hand and so you know there was even a tribe in 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 the book of judges who spent years learning how to be left-handed so they could they could do a particular job and fight with their left hand, but nobody fought with their left hand. So he holds him, Joab kills Amasa, and then Joab leads the army, and they go down, and they find this Sheba guy in this city. And a wise woman comes out, and she says, Joab, why will you kill um, your own people and the people of Israel in this, in this fight? And, and she says, it's Sheba who's caused the rebellion. And Joab said, yeah, you're right. He said, we, we don't want to do a lot of bloodshed that's unnecessary. And um, she, he said, deliver to me, Sheba, the, the rebellion leader, and, and it'll be over. And so she goes back and she tells the men of the city that Joab and his army are outside. It's going to get ugly. He's going to kill us all. And so that makes no sense. And so they take the head of Sheba and they throw it over the wall. And that's how that goes. And so then um, that brings us to about 23 when it says, and Joab was over all the army of Israel, and the son of Jehovah was Cherethites, Pethites, and Ira the Jerothite was chief minister uh, under David. 
All right, chapter 21, and we'll get it all next week. So we'll finish next week. Let's stand. Hey, as, as, uh, as always, you guys, I encourage you guys to be reading ahead. So it's, it's not a ton of reading, but um, definitely for Wednesday nights, if you read ahead a little bit, it'll help. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, Father. We thank you for uh, King David. We thank you, Father, for just the ups and downs. And Lord, we're, we're moved. And I'm personally moved, Lord, by reading your, your commands and your words to Solomon that if Solomon will follow you as, as, if, as his father David did, that you'll bless Solomon. And Lord, we see David, who was a man of, of, of like passions, a man, Lord, who, who had struggles in the flesh, who had ups and downs. And yet was a man that, that, was, that had a heart of gold and that he loved God. He really loved God in his life. It shows in the Psalms. It shows in his worship. It shows in his, his repentance. And, and, Father, for each one of us, that we're not defined by our mistakes or that we're defined by, by a heart that loves you. And so, God, help each one of us to develop and, Lord, to, to really have the heart of King David, a heart that's passionate for you, that loves you, God, that, that, that our hearts break when we break your heart. And Father, I pray that you protect us from the sins and the, the weights and the sins, as Paul tells us, that so easily ensnare us. And God, let us run our race with endurance, God, the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, Jesus, we thank you. We love you. And help us keep our eyes focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Love you guys. Have a great week.